I wonder whether you've ever been given a really nice present. I'm sure that the Queen today will uh, receive many gifts from family and from friends and organisations. Folks who will want to say to her, we value you, we love you. I wonder whether you're good at giving presents or good at receiving presents. I, uh, a few years ago, decided for my wife's uh, and ours wedding anniversary that I would do something I'd never done before. Uh, I, I did remember it, I always remembered it, but on this particular occasion, I decided I'd buy my wife some perfume. Now, I don't know, gentlemen, whether you've ever bought perfume for a lady, but I'm now going to explain how you do that. Uh, I do apologize, because this will add a little bit of pressure on you, uh, because there will be an expectation that something along these lines should happen. What you do is, I, I went to Debenhams, and I wandered in and looked lost. And a lady came up to me and said, oh, could I help you, young man? And I said, that's... Very nice, thank you. Uh, yes, I've come to buy my wife some perfume. And it's, oh, that's lovely. Is it a special occasion? I said, yes, it's our wedding anniversary and I wanted to get her some perfume. So she said, this is what you do. You, she gives you loads of bits of paper, sort of stick length, and she sprays them with different perfumes. Not the same stick, lots of different sticks, and writes the name of the perfume on it. So you, you spray it and don't smell it too quickly because the first whiff is kind of alcoholish. And you wave it in the air a little bit, and then you sniff it. And if you like it, you keep it. And if you don't like it, you throw it away. So this is what I did. And I probably tried about 10 or 15 different perfumes on different sticks. And smelling and smelling. And I discarded the ones I didn't like. And I kept the ones that I did like. And then eventually, I got it down to two. And I spent my sniffing and sniffing and sniffing. And I said, tell you what, I'll take them both. <laughs> then she told me how much they cost. <laughs> But I was too embarrassed at that point, so I decided just to go along with it. Yes, thank you very much. I'll I'll take them both. She said, would you like me to wrap them for you? I said, that would be fantastic. I'm rubbish at wrapping. Um, Yes, please. So she wrapped them nicely, a little bow on them, put them in a little bag, and out I trotted, having paid for them. uh, Out I trotted and got Sarah a card on the way home and uh, got home, wrote the card, put it in the bedside table, ready the next morning, anniversary comes, get up nice and early, wander downstairs, cup of tea, darling. Lay in bed with her, uh, open the bedside drawer, take out the card. She opens the card. I've written all the right things in. Oh, you are lovely. Yes, I know. I'm brilliant today. I've done really well. One year, I bought her a bike for Christmas. Went down really badly. Really badly. She wanted a ring. I bought her a bike, and she came out of the office and went, well, I can't wear that, can I? Anyway, I'm painting a bad picture of my wife. She's absolutely lovely. Anyway, she, I said, well, darling, I, I got you a little present, and... Uh, I passed it over, she opened the bag, she looked inside, the first thing she said was, you didn't wrap these. (laughs) Well, she unwrapped them and she smelt them and one of them was called Irresistible. And uh, everything was wonderful. I was the best husband for that day. It it quickly went downhill, obviously. A few days later, I was back in the doghouse and lost some stripes and everything carried on as normal. I, I do try every anniversary to do something inventive. But just imagine my horror if Sarah had taken those perfumes and put them in a bedside drawer, never to be used. Having taken some time to 
choose the right one and to get them wrapped and to pay for them and to go through the whole rigmarole of tea in the morning and and to pass on the present. For her to take the two perfumes and put them in a drawer and leave them and months later I open the drawer and there they are, still wrapped, never used, never touched. What's it like to give a present which is never used? It can be like that in the church. That God pours out his love and his blessing his grace and his mercy upon the church. But it's never used in the way that he has intended. Last weekend we celebrated Pentecost, where God pours out his amazing blessing, his Holy Spirit on the church. And week after week after week in our churches, there are people who long for God to pour out his blessing in the same way. In fact, we prayed about it in the prayer time before we came in here. That God might pour out his blessing upon his people. Centuries after Pentecost, up and down the country, churches longing that God might burst onto the scene and bless and gift his church in new ways. In our recent history, many have experienced the Toronto blessing, the Pensacola blessing. Did you hear about the Sunderland blessing? Didn't affect the football team, but there was a blessing People spoke of amazing encounters with God. Their their lives were changed. They felt closer to him. They felt more alive than ever before. Many fell over, laughed. Some appeared drunk. Some roared like lions. There were critics and questions asked. But one of the most telling comments I remember reflecting upon that that time, and I was reminded of it as I read about this wonderful plan that Paul expounds in Ephesians 3, It's not how many times you fall over that counts. It's how many times you get up again. What I believe this guy I heard was trying to point out was that God has blessed his church for a reason and it isn't just so that we might feel good. He blesses his people in order that something else might happen. It's always been this way. That was why God chose the people of Israel, that they might become some group of people that might reflect his glory to the world. And it was read in our reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. God says, I want the world to know what I look like through the church. That's why I blessed it. That's why I've poured my grace and my mercy and my love and my power into the church that they might display what I look like to the world. So when the world says, where is Jesus? Where is God in all this? God points and says, look to my people. You see, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And here Paul takes hold of this responsibility and says, I am called to do these things. When God gives his blessing, what is our response? Well, I've read through Ephesians from beginning to end and reflected on chapter 3, and there were a few things that propped up for me. The first thing we see in Paul as an example is a man who is committed to learning or committed to growing. He said, if God has blessed me, if God has called me, if God has poured out his grace and his love into my life, then I'm going to be a man that continues to grow under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and reflecting upon the Word of God, having received the vision of Jesus Christ, here we see a man who wants to know God better. 
And if we are to be the people of God that he's calling us to be as the church, we have to have that desire to know God better, to know about him and to know him in order that we might treat one another well, but also that we might fulfill our purpose in the world. Many Christians I meet have that moment of redemption where they are saved and they know that God loves them, but it stops there. They don't go on through this process that theologians call sanctification to become more like Jesus. Many years ago, I was a student in a, in a church in Leon C and the, the minister went on sabbatical and left me in charge. And a lady came to see me. She was in her 70s. And she came to see me in my study and she sat down and she said, John, I want to talk to you about my problem. I said, please just share. She said, well, I, I haven't really been getting on in my relationship with God over the last few weeks. And I feel very distant from God. And when I pray, I don't feel as if he's listening. And when I open God's word, I don't seem to see him and hear him speaking to me. I said, how long has this been happening? She said, well, two or three weeks. Well, the conversation continued and I felt prompted to ask her again, how long has this been happening? She said, well, actually quite a few months. As the conversation continued, I asked her again, how long has this been happening? And with tears in her eyes, this lady in her mid-70s said this, 33 years. She said, when I first became a Christian, I felt close to God. She said, when I opened God's word, he spoke to me. When I went to the prayer meeting, I felt alive with the Holy Spirit. When I sang worship songs, I really felt as if I was connecting. And then it all went badly wrong. I had an argument with somebody in the life of the church. And my heart became bitter and I stopped praying and I stopped reading my Bible and I stopped worshipping. And she said, and for 33 years, I felt far away from God. I had the joy and the privilege of leading that lady back to a living relationship with Christ. She died the following summer, knowing God in all his fullness. You see, it's so easy to go through the rigmarole. She went to all the services and all the prayer meetings. She turned up at all the groups, but there was no relationship there. There was no sense of knowing God, of wanting to grow. She was held back. And if we are to follow in Paul's example, then we must be earnest we must persevere, we must go forward strongly, we must be devoted to him because that kind of earnestness produces a growth in us which leads to depth of faith in all circumstances. There is no shortcut to holiness. It comes through the difficulty and the trials and the tribulation. Just as Paul said in the midst of his suffering, here we see a man who has not stopped yearning to grow. Maybe this morning that will be the passion for you to suddenly say, yes, I want to grow in my faith again and I'll do what it takes. I'll give time and energy and I'll share my life with others in order to make sure that I continue to grow. The second thing we see in this passage is Paul's deep commitment to unity. 
His calling is to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not simply to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. That which others were struggling with, like Peter until his revelation in Acts chapter 10, Paul felt called to take the gospel beyond those who would normally receive it to the Gentile community. And he was committed to bringing together those of different cultures and understandings to say it is in our unity together that we reflect God to the world. It has as Jew and Gentile and Scythian and slave and poor and rich love and work together that they look like Christ. This commitment to unity is reflected and I'm sure you've seen this in chapter 2 verse 14 that he makes the dividing wall of hostility disappear. Now there is unity and most of the letters in the New Testament are written to churches which grappled with what it looks like to be diverse and yet in unity. And Paul is personally committed to discovering this unity, not fellowship. This word koinonia, which means fellowship, does not mean that cup of tea after the service in green cups. I'm sure you don't have green cups. I should have checked. Koinonia is is that sense in which we are working together to fulfill a task. Koinonia is that sense in which we join with one another to complete a vision that God has given us. Koinonia is what the team will be doing as they serve uh, lunch to others this afternoon. It is acting together in order to reflect God to the world. That's real fellowship. That's sharing in unity. Because as we share in unity, we share in God himself. Our fellowship, says John, is with the Father and with his Son and with Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What we believe about God binds us together in unity. We share a common understanding of this God in which our Christian faith is unique. We have a common experience of knowing him. We'll share a common meal together. It is in these moments that we rediscover unity that Paul was so passionate about. I believe in unity. As I travel around the country, I see it more and more that churches that are in unity... See God at work. I I did some research into church unity a little while ago and uh, I I looked from a church growth perspective and I discovered all kinds of stuff. But I mainly discovered this, that where there is unity in the church, where there are loving relationships across the church, where there is a commitment to unity across the church, God pours out his spirit and there is growth. Now, I've not been briefed today on what I should say. No one said, oh, could you mention this because we've got a problem with this. No one's said a word to me and big respect because many churches try and push you in a certain direction. But But I looked at a website and there are some amazing ones out there. There's even one called www.doubleyourchurchattendance.com. Even there they mention the importance of loving relationships. One quote caught my eye in my my research. According to Swartz, the love quotient is calculated on the basis of hospitality and laughter in the congregation. Growing churches have a much higher love quotient than stagnant or declining ones. Swartz says that real love amongst church members spreads that mysterious scent that few can resist. That when we love one another, when we're committed to one another, when we're together, 
God blesses. R.T. Kendall speaks in his books about the Holy Spirit being a dove which rests upon those things which are at peace and are at still. But when it's agitated, when it's disunity, when there's gossip, when there's slander, when there's division, the Holy Spirit flies away. And so it is that if we are to follow in the example of Paul and truly live it, then we will be a church which continually asks questions about unity. A church that doesn't ask questions is a church trapped in the fog of its own ignorance. Unity is attractive because we see how people love one another. Jesus speaks about unity in John 17. As he prays for his disciples, his church, he prays in John 17, God, that they might be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. If we are to follow in the example of Paul, we'll be a church which is committed to learning and growing. We'll be a church that's committed to loving and unity in all things. One of the things that I find is missing as I travel around the country now is is the gift of encouragement. Many years ago, I I ran the London Marathon. And I was doing really well. The first uh, uh, half, 13 miles, I ran across uh, Tower Bridge and I felt really good. And my wife was getting on tube stations and popping up in various places and jumping up. Go on, John! She doesn't doesn't speak like that. Just (laughs) Just my impression. And uh, I was running, I was feeling really good. And then I got to about 16 or 17 miles. And I really hit the wall and my body began to break down. And all around me, I could see people lying on stretchers and having Vaseline rubbed into all kinds of places and being covered in tinfoil. And I thought, that's not going to be me. I'm going to keep going. But my body was breaking down. I was really struggling. My legs were aching. My mind was really struggling with the whole thing. And I, I kept going. And as I passed the Tower of London along the cobbles of a a red carpet, I was hardly running at all. And what appeared to be a man who was probably about 75 ran past me and said, You okay, Sonny? (laughs) And I ran for an organization. I had my name across my chest. And as I ran, people would shout out, Keep going, John. Don't give up, John. You can do it. Not far to go now. Easy for you to say. (laughs) Keep going, John. Don't give up. And then Sarah will pop up. Keep going, John. Keep going. You can do it. I think she ran more of the marathon than I did. And as I turned to the mile past Buckingham Palace for the last 500 yards, there were people cheering and clapping. Keep going. You can do it. You can get there. Applauding. And I got across the finish line and held my arms. When I thought they were aloft, they were like here. And I got across the line and I burst into tears and my wife was waiting at the end as I picked up my bag and as I went home and there was that sense of achievement. I'd finished, but what got me there was people shouting out along the side of the road. People who I never have met or will probably never meet again who read my name and said, keep going, don't give up, you can get there. And if we are to express unity in the life of the church, let us use words. Let us encourage one another. If your ministry this morning is about coming to church and receiving some words and singing some songs and praying some prayers and having a cup of tea, will you add in the opportunity to minister to one another with words of encouragement? It's a missing gift in the life of our churches, especially for those who serve 
in leadership. Many years ago, I was in Uganda, and I preached on a passage in Nehemiah 4, and I used the phrase shoulder to shoulder, and my tiny interpreter, Titus Kissybeaker, there's a great name, Pastor Titus Kissybeaker, I will remember him for many years. And as I preached, he was my interpreter at the Baptist Assembly in Jinja in Uganda. I said, we are to stand shoulder to shoulder. And little Titus jumped up in the air and went shoulder to shoulder. And I got down to his level and I repeated the phrase, we are shoulder to shoulder. That's what unity means in the life of the church. We stand together. You only have to read Titus to see the gift of encouragement in all its fullness. There is no greater example than Paul, who sought to encourage and to bless people for a reason. Thirdly, we see a man who is committed to worship. A man who prays. The next passage is all about prayer and about praise. Here was a man who saw the importance of the Lord's Supper, the corporate meeting of the church for prayer, that sense of togetherness. And a healthy church is a church where people are focused on God. They're willing to humble themselves. They're willing to express joy and reverence and excitement and celebration for God. Not simply in songs, but in the way they speak about God. Here at this table, we will once again express humility that without the cross, we cannot have faith. Without the cross, we cannot be renewed. It's here at the table we come humbly before a God who loves us despite our sin. And it is out of humility that our faith grows. Not through knowledge, not through the blessing of the Holy Spirit, not through some special prayer, but out of our inner humility to put God first. That's worship. It's not enough to sing the song, is it? Not enough to read the Bible. It is that childlikeness that says, I follow God. He is first in all things. And here we see a man filled with humility as he describes himself as the least deserving of all God's people. That's the example we are to follow. To put God so much up there that we are here. Not to be a a dirt mat, a doormat. But in here to say, God, you are first. Humility is the essence of worship. Not how beautifully we sing. I was reading uh, Pete Gregg, who runs 24-7, reading one of his blogs just a few weeks ago. He says this, last week I had the privilege of addressing very briefly a prayer meeting in Jakarta attended by more than 100,000 people. And this was just one of 376 simultaneous, simultaneous events across the nation with an estimated total attendance of 3 million. After Jakarta, we flew north to the city of Medan, and met with a pastor whose church, planted in 1993 with 119 people, has grown to 40,000. He is currently starting a new church every 11 days and has translated the Bible into the dialects of five unreached people groups. The pastor was emphatic that the heart and soul of this explosive growth is 24-7 prayer. They've been praying night and day since 1999 on the top floor of a shopping mall. In that 24-7 prayer room, the presence of God was so strong that we could hardly stand. Carla, my wife, fell to the floor, nearly weeping. All we wanted to do was to pray 
and worship. Steve Brady, who's the principal of Moreland's College, said a few years ago at an event I was at, he said, you can tell how popular the church is by those who come on a Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the minister is by those who come on a Sunday evening. You can tell how popular Jesus is by those who come to the prayer meeting. I was deeply challenged. It is out of humility that we are able to worship. And here we see Paul, a man who is humble enough to give God all the glory. Lastly, my time is nearly up. We are committed, if we are to follow in Paul's example, to serving no matter what. A missionary God, a missionary spirit creates a missionary church with a missionary people with the desire to see others come to know the Lord as they have done. This fruitfulness is a mark of a congregation, a church touched by God. Fruit as a result of these things. And as we bear fruit, we will look more like Christ. Serving even in suffering so that God's exuberant love might be known. Another word for serving is sacrifice. And if we read the story of Paul through Acts and Corinthians, we see a man who was willing to die for his faith. The reason why I always ask that people pray that we might be faithful at vis-a-vis is because many months ago I sat listening to a persecuted pastor in prison And he was asked the same question, what what can we pray for you? And I suspect in my heart, like your heart, I was thinking, well, I want to get out of prison. (laughs) I'd like to be back with my family. I'd like to be doing a job again. I'd like to be being useful. No, that, that wasn't his prayer. His prayer was, pray that I might be faithful no matter what. I'm deeply challenged by that. In a world of comfort, the call to serve, the call to sacrifice is greater than anything before, than ever before. And if we are to see the church grow and move mightily in our nation, it will come through humility, it will come through a desire to grow, but it will come through sacrifice. The longing to serve one another, no matter what. As I draw to a close, let me remind you that If we are to follow in Paul's example, he calls us to be committed to learn and grow. He calls us to be committed to one another in expressing unity. He calls us to be a people committed to worship out of humility. He calls us to be a people committed to serve and to sacrifice. Livingstone was once asked, where do you want to go? And he said, anywhere, as long as it is forward. Some of you this morning will be thinking, well, this is just such a big task. And inside, you will have felt a bit like that lady I described, who had faith, but somehow that faith has drifted away. And you'll feel that you're not up for the task. You'll feel that you can't do it. Some years ago now, I was in a bad place in my life. I I was burnt out. I was off work. And I felt completely useless. I felt as if I'd failed in my ministry. And I was off work for a number of months, and my friends, Jeff and Lynn, said, John, why don't you come to us uh, with us to London next Sunday 
and uh, invited Sarah and I to go to a, a Hillsongs church in London. Well, I, I'm not into all that kind of stuff. I, I call it Church the Musical. It's held in a big musical theatre in London where they put on We Will Rock You, it's lights, it's bands, it's, I knew what it would be like and I walked in and sure enough it was, down the front there were hundreds of young people bouncing up and down, jumping, enjoying themselves, singing the worship songs. There was a fantastic worship band with great lights, there were cameras, there were seven singers, each one of these singers was dressed in the right clothes, looked really trendy, they went up in high order and then down, they were the right colour, they knew all the words to the songs, they all did the right moves at the right time and I thought I don't want to be here why do I want to be here and I went reluctantly I said to my wife first thing in the morning do we really have to go she said yeah you've got to go so we arrived there and it was just like I thought it was going to be and I really wasn't enjoying it then there was a 15 minute offering appeal I was really turned off and then to make matters worse they introduced the speaker who was American He was an American preacher. You could could feel the tension as he walked onto the stage. You could see the dazzle of his teeth appearing before he did. He looked like he'd been spray tanned off stage before he came in. He was muscly. He wore kind of blue trendy jeans with white, uh, uh, with grey brownie trendy pointy shoes like proper evangelists do. He wore a white shirt which revealed his muscles underneath his body. His hair was immaculate. He was bronze. He was shiny. It was like, Aah! hey, how are you doing everybody? And all the girls went, Aah! and I went, Aah! oh, I was in a bad place. And he told this story. He said, well, I, he said, I used to be a really good swimmer. I won't do the American accent anymore. I don't think I was doing it then. <laughs> he said, I used to be a really good swimmer. He said, I was good at the butterfly. And then turned around and showed everyone his muscles. And all the girls went, ooh. And he said, I was a really good swimmer. Across the state where I lived, I was known as one of the best butterfly swimmers there was. He said, and we were in a gala, he said, and I was in the final of the butterfly and I was expected to win. I was the favourite. He said, I stood on the starting blocks and the gun went. He said, I dived in and then inexplicably, he said, I swam two strokes of breaststroke. And then I realised and got into the butterfly. I won the race, but I was disqualified. He said, I felt terrible. He said, I'd let everybody down. He said, I'd let myself down and my parents who are watching. He said, my friends, my club. He said, I failed. And he said, I was so upset. I was so gutted. He said, I went and sat in the baby pool. He said, I went and sat in the baby pool. And after a while, he said, I leant forward in the baby pool and I put my hands and my head under the water. I took a really deep breath and I just put my head under the water. And I held it there for as long as I could. And then every now and again, I'd take a deep breath again and put my head back down under the water. He said, I was sulking in the baby pool. He said, and I didn't realise. He said, I couldn't hear because my head was under the water. They were calling my name because I was in another race. He said, they kept calling my name and kept calling my name. He said, and eventually the coach said, where is he? And my friend pointed out he was in the baby pool. So the coach came over and he pulled me out of the baby pool. And he said, you've got another race to swim. And he put him on the starting blocks of the freestyle final. The gun went. He said, I won the race. And as he told this story, I felt my wife, my friend Lynn, my friend Jeff, all lean forward like this. 
They said they didn't. But I felt they did. And on that day, God spoke to me and said, John, you have another race to swim. And maybe this morning you're one of those people who feels that you've failed. And you can never live up to these expectations. You can never follow the example of Paul. But God says you have another race to swim. Get on the blocks. Get going. God is not finished with you yet. As we come to this communion table, let us come with humility, ready for God to relaunch us into a vision of what he's called us to do. And may God bless you and strengthen you as you serve him. Let's pray. Father God, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your church. And Lord, we pray that this morning we might have a fresh desire to learn and to grow together and to worship and to serve and sacrifice for you that your world might see that Jesus Christ is alive. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.